Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello again, and welcome to Carolina Newsmakers. Uh, again, today we have Bob Phillips, another former alumnus of, uh, of the broadcasting business who uh, came to his senses and left broadcasting and went out and found a, an honest job as uh, the executive director of Common Calls of North Carolina. And uh, we kid Bob a lot about his days back when he was a television journalist with WPTF-TV back in the, well, I don't know, 1980s? Was that when it was, Bob? John, it, it was. And I think maybe you and my wife might be the only people who may remember that. But indeed, it was the 1980s. Well, uh, that was a wonderful time. And, 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 and of course, you also then later served as press secretary for former Lieutenant Governor Dennis Wicker, and then you joined Common Calls. Before we start too much, let's talk a little bit about what Common Calls is and, and uh, exactly what your organization is all about. Sure. We're a nonpartisan, nonprofit, uh, good government organization, you might say. I guess our mission is advocating for more open, honest, and accountable government. And I'm the uh, executive director, lobby a lot of the General Assembly, and really value where we can trying to work across the aisle and uh, find common ground on these good pro-democracy reforms that we all feel like would be uh, better if we can get uh, adopted. And you've been doing that now almost, well, you're, you're close to 20 years if you're not at 20. I, you, you know, you've got a great memory. I am actually done at 20 years. This even exceeds my time in broadcasting. So uh, I have been doing this longer than anything else. Well, uh, it's an interesting organization. As you said, you are bipartisan, and I think that's uh, very important in this day and age because we have so much partisan politics going on that we need these organizations to try to bridge the gap. Well, one of the things that's just finished, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about all the effects that uh, happened to state and federal government because of the completion of the census. Uh, of course, we've alluded uh, in the last couple of weeks to, with a couple of other guests about the fact that North Carolina will gain an additional congressman, but it goes beyond that. And uh, of course, redistricting is something that we do based on population. North Carolina, Bob, as, as uh, you know, and so many of our listeners know, uh, we are having a lot of growth, but it's basically uneven. And so the larger areas are getting even larger and the smaller areas are losing, either losing population or standing still and in effect losing their political clout. So there's a lot of fallout. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the various and sundry things that will happen because that we have this new census and North Carolina's growth. Uh, we can start with the, the additional congressional district and that's gonna require uh, redistricting and that's not gonna be easy. No, it's not. Uh, again, this is the second uh... I know decade in a row, maybe even more than that, that we have gained an additional congressional seat as a result of our um, population growth. And uh, to your point, I think about a third of our 100 counties actually lost population in the last 10 years. And those are the rural counties. And again, this puts more pressure on the lawmakers as they try to draw the lines. And we hope, and this is what we advocate for uh, a fair process, but when it comes to also now uh, adding a 14th congressional seat, uh, again, the hope is that it is a seat and the way they uh, draw the lines that uh, the entire map is reflective 
of what we are politically, and that is a purple state. Well, you know, 750,000 or thereabout is what should be in each congressional district. And when you look at our two largest counties, Wake and Mecklenburg, and, and uh, Wake has just, just recently passed Mecklenburg slightly in size, but both of those counties are in the 1.1 million area, a little bit larger, quite frankly. And so here's something that's really interesting. Wake County and Mecklenburg County are both larger than nine states, entire states. Uh, Wake County and Mecklenburg counties each have more people than Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota, Alaska, Delaware, Rhode Island. They're nine states. And that's a little hard for us to wrap our hands around because that, that creates some very unique challenges because those two counties uh, will have will have to be split into two congressional districts. That's right. Yeah, you cannot draw a single district in Wake or Mecklenburg. You do have to draw more than one to you know, capture, that's rule number one, every congressional district has to have that equal population. And um, it is a, you know, North Carolina, you and I, uh, we've talked about this before, what a big change in 50 years, even in our lifetimes or longer than that. We're, we're both older than 50, but it's just such a, um, I guess, a nod to how we've changed so much. And we are now a state where more people are from somewhere else than actually native North Carolinians, uh, like you and I, Don. And uh, indeed, though, it is something that um, does create challenges to um, the map makers. But we do think that districts can be drawn in an open process that produce maps that are not distorted so much where it is not really reflecting, again, uh, what we are in North Carolina. And that is a very, very competitive, politically divided state. How do you see uh, the the maps uh, coming out, especially Wake and Mecklenburg? Because uh, how will Mecklenburg, who will the majority of Wake County have, uh, uh, or actually the minority, the minority, uh, three hundred fifty or so thousand people in Wake County are going to have to be in another district? I'm getting to that question. What district will they be in? Goodness, if I if I had the crystal ball and could uh, predict and. Uh, you know, I might be one of those hired to uh, draw the maps. Uh, what I can say is, uh, presumably, both parties right now have their experts trying to do just what you're asking, and that is draw maps based on the projections. Now, we do have the census data knowing enough where we are getting that 14th seat. But, um, you know, that's part of the problem where you have both parties, but the party in power is the one that can prevail, but where they draw the lines to give as many seats as they can. And you may have seen there had been a published report that there could be um, uh, some kind of a plan that would create four safe Democratic seats, and one of them being uh, the seat that uh, Congresswoman Ross holds, but that uh, other seats would be uh, created that uh, might even be a speculation as that Speaker Tim Moore might grab that would include a little bit of Mecklenburg, but stretch all the way to Cleveland County, which is his home turf. But all that's speculative. Uh, no one really knows right now, but we do know that um, the urban areas and the growth, it's going to be more compact, as you've mentioned, Don, in Charlotte and Raleigh for at least one of those districts. Well, there's all sorts of court, uh, there have been all sorts of court challenges over the last 10 years or so 
that have come out with different rules and, and, and things that must happen in any redistricting, will that be easier to do now or harder to do because of the way the population came out? It, my first blush is it looks like it's going to be more difficult. Well, the problem is, and one of the court decisions that we were involved in uh, basically found that partisan gerrymandering is a uh, violation of our state constitution. And what that means is uh, the map makers aren't allowed to look at election results and partisan data when they create those maps. Um, I don't know that the size of the population or the state, rather, is as much of a, a challenge as it is for us, groups like Common Cause and just the public itself to enforce that. There is really no way to enforce uh, a ban of looking at partisan data when the very people drawing the map are the lawmakers themselves. They know their districts. They know the congressional districts. They sort of know where the population trends are. And it's just very, very difficult to enforce. Um, indeed, as you get uh, as you had mentioned too at the top, where the distribution is more tightly compacted in the urban areas, that does create some challenges, and particularly in the in the legislative district drawing, where you have 120 House districts across the state and 50 Senate districts across the state. Well, on the congressional side, uh, districts like the first district are actually going to add more geographic area to get up to 750,000 people. So that. that Makes that, it stretches territory. That's right, and you you point that one out. I think I remember one of the times the map that had been approved. You could draw if you could draw the line and flatten it out. It would stretch from Raleigh to Austin, Texas. I think it's just an amazing amount of you know miles uh, that that one district has had. And you're right, as as counties empty of people, then you have to grab more land in some of those rural areas. Uh, to create that district that has that 750,000 uh, population. So you've got that not only in the northeastern section of North Carolina, but you've also got it in the extreme western part of the state. The, the area west of Asheville is very difficult to come up with uh, an easy count of 750,000 people. So it's going to be interesting to watch how that uh, comes out. And as you mentioned, uh, when we redistrict, of course, it also is going to redistrict the House and the Senate districts. And so the larger counties are going to start having, what, 8, 10, 12 people? I think Wake and Mac will get additional legislative seats. And then you've got the complexity of the lawmakers trying not to what they call double bunk, and that is draw new districts that might have two or three incumbents in the new district. Uh, generally, we'd like to see a process that would be blind to that and that the lines are drawn, uh, again, with uh, what is uh, the most fair manner and the best, most competitive district. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that is going to create more challenges as well. Just like we were talking with the congressional, the uh, rural seats, you're going to have to grab more land, more counties to create those House and Senate districts. Now, am, am I correctly saying that uh, for the congressional seats, the congressman actually does not have to live in the district he's running in? Um, That's is that correct? That, that is correct. Uh, Walter Jones, he didn't live too far from his uh, congressional district, but he lived outside it. You have had certainly candidates who've run uh, for districts, not successfully, I might add, but have run from, say, you know, more than 100 miles from the district that they're running for. So you're in, you're right. Now that is not the case for the legislature. You have to live yeah. in the, the district you're representing. 
And that's what causes that double monkeying problem. That's right. That's correct. Yeah. So uh, maybe one way to get around that would be just say, okay, you've got to live within 50 miles of your district or something of that nature. Maybe, maybe that law needs a addressing. But uh, of course, the whole idea behind uh, that is that, that the public can get in touch with uh, their elected officials because they're living in, in or around their, their home area. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch that. When do you project that they will finish the redistricting? Uh, uh, when, and when will they start on this process? Well, filing is in December and the process will begin in October. I think we get the census data in late September. This is all much later in the year than we normally would do. I mean, right now, the debt, the census data would normally be in now and the map making would actually already be beginning but all that is being pushed back to the fall, Don. And, you know, again, that's a concern. We want to get as much public input and public eyes on the process. And that's certainly something Common Cause will be looking to try to push and do. Well, Common Cause has been very active in this area, and I suspect you will continue to be because this is uh, this is grassroots government at, 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 uh, at the grassroots level, so to speak. Our guest is Bob Phillips. He's the executive director of Common Calls North Carolina, and we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers, and we'll be talking about the issues that Bob and his organization are concerned with, and we'll do that right after we take time out for this mess. Excuse me. I know you have a nine o'clock, so I'll keep this short. I'm the business suit in the back of your closet. You wore me nearly every day before your office went, quote, casual. I used to be the CEO of your closet. Now I'm just that one intern no one ever talks to. I always thought you'd circle back with me, get granular, keep me in the pipeline. But nada, nothing. Don't you remember the McKittrick presentation? You spilled coffee on me and I still looked amazing during the breakout talkback Q&A. So I think it's time for me to move on. I've got a great resume and I absolutely crush it in interviews, okay? Let's make this a clean break. Shift the paradigm. The only thing I ask is that you think outside the box here and do this. Take me to Goodwill, where I can really make a difference. Your donations to Goodwill create new jobs, training programs, and education assistance for people in your community. To find your nearest donation center, go to goodwill.org. Donate stuff. Create jobs. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Our guest this week on Carolina Newsmakers is Bob Phillips. He's the executive director of Common Calls, which is a nonpartisan organization that uh, that lobbies the legislature and, and tries to work across uh, partisan lines to uh, get good and effective uh, government that uh, affects all of us. And, and uh, they have, in many cases, been working so much in the election process uh, Bob, we talked about redistricting and gerrymandering and the results of the census in the first segment, but that's not all that's going on in the election area. You've got the voting rights issues, the voter ID thing, the same day registration, out of precinct voting, election integrity, and so forth. So let's talk a little bit about all these other election issues and where Common Cause stands and what you feel like we need to do. 
Very, you know, again, uh, another one of our favorite topics, Don. I mean, obviously, I think we want what everybody wants, and that is a, a secure, safe, fair, accessible voting system. No one wants to see voter fraud. But at the same time, we don't want to have rules that are so hard that maybe it does indeed disenfranchise folks. And I think the last election, you know, we can all be proud of in many ways and that we had a record voter turnout. There was no widespread fraud that has been uh, reported in North Carolina, no evidence of that. And um, vote by mail, for instance, which is something we did because of the COVID, uh, and that was used by nearly a million North Carolinians successfully. Uh, things like that, we would like to see that option continue in a way that is easy, and we would not like to see um, things that might be making it harder to cast that ballot from home. Uh, but that's one of the things we're pushing. We certainly do not want to see, again, anything that might be considered a barrier that might make uh, voting harder. Um, I'll just kind of leave it at that and let you ask the next question. Well, I was going to, you know, give us both sides of the voter ID requirement, uh, the people that are for it, why are they for it, and why are the people against it? And we will, I will say off the top of the bat, we were opposing the voter ID. We did not feel like it was really a necessary requirement to obtain a ballot. There are other ways, I mean, certainly identifying who the voter is, but the way we've been doing it all this time, we felt like was working. And again, there is no evidence that we have had widespread fraud uh, in North Carolina, but it is now in our constitution. The voters did pass it in 2018 and it has been litigated and we are now waiting for the three judge panel to um, rule on the case. I suspect, Don, inevitably someday there will be, again, some application of the ID law in North Carolina since it is in our constitution. And I guess what we all want and hope is that it will be broad. There will be many different types of IDs that will be allowed, not just a North Carolina driver's license or a passport, and that if someone doesn't have an ID, that they can still still sign under penalty of perjury an attestation, as it's called, and that is you are swearing that you are who you say you are and still get a ballot that will count. Uh, but that's what we're going to see when this decision is comes from the judges and if the, <clears throat> if the state wins its case, then the legislature this session will begin working on how to implement uh, the voter ID law. So uh, when do you anticipate that decision coming down? You know, I, I, again, I don't know exactly. I know they just wrapped up last week and it is one of those three judge panels. And uh, I don't know that there's any timetable on it. Obviously, uh, with the fall elections coming up, I really doubt that an ID uh, you know, that it could be put in that this decision would come and that the legislature could get the law into place. But um, I would think within the next three months, but that is just, uh, you know, very much a guess on my part is when we might see that decision. A lot of people have, have very strong feelings about same day registration. That's another issue that uh, has been well discussed. Uh, what's, uh, what's your feeling and where does common call stand on same day registration? Well, what we have in North Carolina is um, it's same day registration where you can register and cast a ballot during the early voting period all the way up to the Saturday before the Tuesday election. And we've had that since 2008 and it has worked very well. And we don't like to look at voting and these laws as a partisan uh, kind of uh, position in 2008 
the in the Obama campaign, they really utilized and got a lot of people using that. In this past election, Don, there's really, uh, I guess, evidence that Republicans utilize same day uh, in some counties more than Democrats. Uh, so I think both parties are using it. It does give opportunities for folks to, for whatever reason, they have not registered or they've uh, let uh, you know time go by. They need to update their registration, which can be done uh, anytime. But during that early voting period, it does give people an opportunity who are citizens of the state and have been here for the 30 days, you know, a chance to register and cast a ballot. So we, we've been very supportive of it. And uh, a court held up that um, law when it was uh, when the legislature attempted uh, to repeal it last decade. The court did uphold it. Well, in some of our peer states, and I guess we're talking about our neighbors in Tennessee, South Carolina, Virginia, uh, Georgia, uh, other states that uh, have similar populations to North Carolina. What are they doing on these issues as far as voter ID and same day registration, that sort of thing? You know, many of those states do have voter ID, uh, and yet, as far as things like uh, robust early voting and uh, out of precinct voting, where you show up and uh, on election day and you're at the wrong precinct, where you can actually cast a provisional ballot that counts, or same day voter registration and uh, pre pre registration for 16 and 17 year olds, and I say pre-registration, not voting for 16 and 17 year olds, but just pre-registration. Those are things that we have in our law in North Carolina that uh, many of the other states don't have. And in many ways, I think North Carolina has and can be looked upon as a as, as having been a leader uh, in uh, pro-voting laws. And I will say this, when I first came to Common Cause many, many years ago, as you mentioned, 20 years ago, we were in the bottom 10 for voter turnout, voter participation. And as these laws have been uh, evolving over the last 20 years, I think it was around 2008 and 2012 when we started moving up and we are in the top 10 in terms of voter turnout now. And there are a lot of factors, certainly uh, voter enthusiasm has a lot to do with that, but no doubt in my mind, we see that when you make voting easier and more accessible, participation goes up. And that's good for everybody. That's good for all political parties. Well, we last year, of course, because we were right in the middle of the COVID-19 situation, we had uh, mail-in and absentee voting that uh, was uh, at least uh, somewhat controversial, at least uh, some people thought it was. Um, and uh, what, what's your view on that? And how did that turn out, uh, especially in North Carolina? I think it worked well. And, you know, we were not a state, as you know, some of the other states like Michigan and Pennsylvania when election day comes and then they still have all these ballots to count. We had counted all almost the absentee ballots that had come in with the exceptions of those that the U.S. Postal Service delivered late, but yet they were properly postmarked. And that was 12,000 votes. And you think of 12,000 votes out of 5.6 million casts. That's not a lot. But what North Carolina did, and this is with Republicans and Democrats supporting a change in the law, they allowed all the county boards of elections to begin processing absentee ballots five weeks before the election. So on election day, when 730 rolled around, the counties had pretty much gotten all those absentee ballots processed. Now that's not counted, that's processed, but that process meant 
that they simply, uh, you know, hit a few buttons and it was easy to then get that count. And that's why we really did have on election night, uh, our results were in. You may remember, of course, that some were not certified until 10 days after the fact. And those were the races that were razor tight and that those absentee ballots, those late arriving absentee ballots that were properly postmarked, and that is postmarked on election day, those had to be counted. But Don, that was again, uh, no more than 12,000 ballots. Well, it seems like uh, you keep saying that it seems like both parties in North Carolina are kind of satisfied with where we are. Uh, there's still uh, discussion about uh, uh, liberalizing it a little bit more and so forth. But uh, basically, uh, you feel like North Carolina did a, a pretty good job. You give them, what, an A minus or a B plus? I'd give them an A minus, uh, yes. Uh, you know, not even grading on the curve. Huh? Like, I know we had to rely on at UNC, I believe. Uh, but that's well, not- I, Yeah, but I was always worried about the curve because I was on the lower end of that curve. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was, too. Um, but really, it's interesting, Don, too. There's a pollster, um, Paul Shoemaker, who has recently conducted a poll and found that overwhelmingly North Carolinians across the board felt like they had a good voting experience. And by that, I mean, it's in the 90% uh, range. And then um, the question of asking whether their local board of elections did a good job. Uh, again, majorities of um, Democrats and independents and even plurality of Republican voters gave the uh, local board of elections uh, high marks, positive marks. I'm not so certain that lawmakers in Raleigh who are trying to suggest that uh, there is a lack of confidence and that somehow Board of Elections did something wrong um, are really in step with their people. I think that by and large, uh, people were very satisfied and particularly in the very challenging COVID times that we uh, you know, were facing last year. Well, of course, uh, COVID-19 changed a lot of things in a lot of places and and hopefully we won't go through that again, uh, at least uh, for a long, long time. But we did learn some good lessons about it that uh, may be uh, things that uh, will help us along the way. So uh, as we wrap up this whole segment on on uh, voting and elections, what changes are you proposing as executive director of Common Calls that North Carolina consider uh, to make the process even better? Well, I do think one of the things that we did that the lawmakers last year in a bipartisan way, they they reduced the witness signature requirement on an absentee ballot. Uh, it used to be you'd have to get two signatures and they reduced it to one. Uh, that law sunset, meaning it went back to the two signatures um, at the end of the year. I'd like to see them go back and, and reduce that one. And that would be, again, do things to strengthen and continue to make voting from home, as we call it, or vote by mail, uh, easier. Um, I do think that uh, maybe making sure that uh, online voter registration, that is something that is they're moving to, but making that um, easier and promoting would be um, a very good thing. And there is some things that other states, I think North Dakota might be doing this, not to say that we do everything North Dakota does, but there is something called automatic voter registration. And that is when you're when you're 18 years of old, you're automatically registered to vote. Uh, just kind of, again, cuts out um, the, the, the process of, of having to have that person uh, do what they need to do to register that they are automatically registered to vote. 
Um, mainly, though, to your question, it is just defending some of these great laws that we have, the 17-day early voting period, the same-day voter registration, uh, the allowance of voting a provisional ballot if you don't get to your proper precinct on election day. Those are all good things and that we have had no problems with them. And as I had mentioned earlier, I think it makes North Carolina uh, a leader in many ways in voting in the country. And that's a good thing for North Carolina. I think business leaders, Don, look at North Carolina like we're seeing in other states, and they don't want to come to a state that might be, you know, a, quote, voter suppression state. So those are the things that we are talking about right now uh, with lawmakers. Our guest is Bob Phillips. He's the executive director of Common Calls, and we're going to kind of continue this uh, line of uh, conversation when we come back, because we're going to talk about money in politics and the the super PACs and the election process that we're getting ready to re-enter already for the 2022 elections. And we'll do that when we return with more of Carolina Newsmakers. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Play in puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say, he's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me, but I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org caregiving for care guides and community. Support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers, and we welcome again Bob Phillips, who's the Executive Director of Common Calls North Carolina. Common Calls is a uh, advocacy group that is nonpartisan and uh, works, uh, and their line is we're dedicated to strengthening democracy and making government more open, honest, and accountable. That's uh, something I think we can all agree on. Um, we were We've spent a lot of the time in the first two segments talking about redistricting and the census and what it's going to do as far as uh, how we're going to have our uh, uh, redistricting done, not only on a congressional level where we're gaining a Congress congressional seat, but also the House, the North Carolina House and Senate seats will also be changed. Well, I want to change now, Bob, and talk a little bit about money and politics because we're getting ready to see another huge campaign coming up as uh, both the Democrats and Republicans are lining up uh, for the Senate seat that will be open uh, in the 2022 election. Uh, And this seat could be very, very pivotal as far as who controls the United States Senate. 
Right now, Senator Burr has that seat. It's a Republican seat. There's, I don't know, a pile of Republicans already announced and, and others thinking about it. The same is happening on the Democratic side. But nationwide, there's going to be a huge amount of uh, interest in this election. This means money is going to be pouring in. This could be a record-setting election. I think so, Don. I mean, you know, North Carolina seems to always have that distinction. I think the um, the last um, uh, Senate race we had, certainly, uh, if not setting a record, was very close to it. And I think it goes all the way back to the, again, a time you and I remember well, the Jim Hunt, Jesse Helms race, which at that time set a record. Um, we're always concerned about a couple of things. One is simply uh, transparency and the ability to really see who's giving the money, when they're giving the money, and uh, having that out there as soon as, uh, as practicable is part of it. Um, it used to be before PACs and the proliferation of what they call super PACs, you know, you had limits on what a person could do uh, uh, in terms of a contribution to a candidate, and we still have them, and I think that is important. But at the same time, uh, as you make reference, these PACs, these super PACs that don't even have to disclose their donors, um, that is a problem, and it's not going to go away, and we're going to see lots and lots of money spent in North Carolina on that, um, on that open Senate seat. The term I think now is what, dark money? Dark money, and that is, again, the kind of money that you really can't trace or track. Uh, the, what was a decision uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court, Citizens United, which kind of opened up the floodgates and allowed um, big donors and corporations to donate unlimited amounts of money, either for the election or for the defeat of a you know candidate of their choice. And that's kind of, again, the ultimate dark money where no one really knows exactly where it's coming from and, and who's behind it. And it really done, you know, it really kind of has dominated campaigns since that uh, Supreme Court decision um, a little more than a decade ago. Well, just as a source of information for our listeners who may be a little bit confused about this, regular political advertising run by the candidate always, uh, in many cases, has uh, to get the uh, lower rates. The candidate has to identify as the sponsor, and, and they have a disclaimer that said, this is Congressman so-and-so, and I stand by this ad. Um, the other so-called dark money doesn't feel that way. And of course, the interesting thing on this, the uh, broadcaster side is uh, we uh, broadcasters cannot edit the copy sent by the candidates. Uh, if it's a congressional, uh, if it's an ad provided by the candidate, uh, we don't have any alternative. But the so-called dark money or super PAC money, we spent an incredible <laughs> time toning some of that rhetoric down I mean, you'd be surprised. I think the listeners would be very surprised at how many times we say, no, we can't run that. Uh, it, it, it's over the top. And that puts us in a very bad situation. I, I, I don't like being there. Uh, it's, it's tough. But uh, so what do you see as a solution to that? Do you, do you think that we will be living with this for some time, that the so-called dark money, the super PACs will continue to have all this access to uh, uh, spending money that uh, people can't identify the, the sponsor or their motives? Well, there are limited things that can be done. I think the aspect of the super PACs and the money, that's not going to go away anytime soon. 
Citizens United will have to be either relitigated and somehow go to the U.S. Supreme Court with another decision that would overturn it, and that's unlikely. Or there would have to be enough states to where there could be, a, again, sort of a congressional um, or where the states have their, um, uh, you have to have three-fifths to ask for uh, a way to um, put an amendment that would overturn it. And that's, again, a very steep mountain to climb, and that's a very unlikely. What you said, Don, is the difference where you don't have control um, over what the candidate is saying, but that, of course, is where the candidate is saying their name and putting their face out there, perhaps saying, I stand behind that. And that is part of that, uh, where you hope it kind of governs what they say and not where they are making outlandish claims and what have you. Uh, the difference is the dark money, they don't have to, so they can press the envelope and cross the line and go as far as they think they can go. What we in the reform community, Don, are pushing would be for, again, more sunshine, more sunshine on who is behind the money and immediate disclosure. And I think that's always been a strong issue that Republicans and Democrats alike have endorsed, but getting passage of strong laws that would provide that has been really um, a big challenge. But that's one of the things we continue to push for. Well, you, you, we've talked about this in a number of times with a number of people, but North Carolina is truly a purple state these days. Uh, and uh, the largest group of uh, new registrants are registering unaffiliated. So, I mean, we've got actually Democrats, Republicans, and unaffiliates. Now, the unaffiliates can choose which primary they vote in. And, uh, of course, almost every unaffiliated voter has views and opinions, and they will either lean Democratic or lean Republican. But does that make campaigning easier or more difficult? Well, I think that it uh, it certainly creates challenges. You know, the party discipline that once upon a time existed, and I guess North Carolina back in the day, you know, was a one-party state by and large. Um, so there are challenges, but over time and over, you know, the course of elections, you pretty much see how areas, neighborhoods, precincts, counties are voting. And and that, that doesn't swing you know, too much. I mean, it does change, but you generally kind of can see the trends. And so they, you know, the campaigns, they look at that and that way they kind of know where their quote voters are. They can see that maybe there's a proliferation of independent voters in, I'll just say Randolph County, that may not be really a great example, but that Randolph County is going to trend and still trends voting heavily Republican. Um, but there are challenges, but again, looking at election results and how counties and precincts perform, uh, which is public, not how individuals vote, but how the precinct performs is public. I mean, that's how they obviously total the uh, votes uh, on election day. Um, that's what the campaigns do, and that's how they kind of make their decisions on where they put their money and how they advertise. From a purely political standpoint of getting things done in the United States Congress, does it help being a, uh, a purple state? Does that give us uh, some uh, greater influence because we've got X number of Republicans and X number of Democrats in the uh, delegation? Uh, does it help us or hurt us? Well, you know, it does go back to what we talked about in the first segment, and that is the uh, apportionment of congressional seats and then how the, law, the state legislature, as they must by the state constitution, they are the ones to draw the lines. 
but even though we are a purple state, uh, when we have a political party in power, they're going to draw the lines in the way that benefits them. And when Democrats were in charge, there was elections back in the 1990s where Republicans in, uh, in totality got more votes in congressional districts, and yet the Democrats gained more seats. And we've certainly seen the same thing since, in, since 2010, where uh, in some cycles there are more congressional ballots overall counted uh, by Democrats, or rather cast for Democrats, uh, but yet the, uh, you know, the Republican makeup might be greater. So there's a little bit of a distortion there. But to your point, uh, there could be some advantages knowing that um, in the uh, presidential sweepstakes, a purple state, never you always have that uncertainty. And uh, so maybe in some ways, both parties and the folks in uh, Washington at the federal level have to pay, uh, you know, attention and try to uh, placate both sides. You, you hope and wish it would work that way. Sometimes it does. But, uh, you know, again, the gerrymandering has so much to do with uh, the, the numbers of uh, who we have uh, serving and uh, they don't line up uh, with really what we are. And that is a purple state. Uh, does, uh, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, most people got their news from three major networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Now there's a multitude of ways to get news, including a number of cable channels. And most of those cable channels uh, are uh, clearly uh, biased in one direction or the other. They're either uh, very conservative or very liberal. Uh, does it bother you that uh, that uh, people are going to news sources that they agree with to begin with and probably not getting the overall straight story that they probably need to make good decisions? With someone who was, you know, uh, again, a, in broadcast journalism back in the 80s and 90s, it, it troubles me deeply. Um, I mean, my own children uh, do not read, and they're in their 20s, by the way, out of college. I mean, I figure they're smart, but they don't read the newspaper every day like I did. They don't watch the traditional networks. I really would be hard pressed to say where they get their information. But uh, that's the way things are. And it's certainly troubling to see the diminishing, uh, just like we've talked about before, the Capitol Press Corps, you know, that used to exist. And you had more eyes, set of eyes watching the process. All those things are troubling. And that people tend to, I guess it's called an echo chamber, get their their information from uh, really more of a validating uh, source and not objective news. I don't really know if I understand what the, what the answer to that is, Don. Um, I know part of it is just the technology, the internet, the fact that uh, there are so many options and choices, but how to bring back what I would consider to be, you know, more objective, more fair, less biased, news presentations. Um, I, I wish we could turn the clock back sometimes, but I, I don't know how to do that. Ten years ago, did you imagine that the newspaper influence would be as low as it is today? I, I never would have. I mean, Don, I know you and I've talked about this and you may relate to it, but when I was at UNC, I had the Charlotte Observer mailed to me every day. It came a day late, but it was a thing I read every single day. And I have recently, I still subscribe to the you know daily newspaper serving Raleigh in the area, but it's online now. The old habits of going out and grabbing the paper are gone. I miss it, but I get it. You have to get your news you know, when you can instantly. 
Uh, but I would have never, ever predicted that ever. And the influence of the opinion page is just not anywhere close to where it used to be. You're right. I mean, for us, we still try to write the uh, opinion editorials and try to uh, uh, influence, if you will, the editorial writers to write uh, opinions that, you know, might be promoting what we're trying to do. But who reads it? You know, a few, a few people are seeing those and it's a real shame. But um, that is, again, a part of the ever-changing world we are in. And uh, I don't know what's next, but I, I don't think we're going to go back to how it once was. Doesn't appear. Doesn't appear. Well, our guest is Bob Phillips. We have one more segment of Carolina Newsmakers coming up. And in that segment, we're going to talk to Bob about the legislation that is uh, being considered in the General Assembly and also in Congress right now that uh, Common Calls has an interest in. And we'll get those views and opinions from Bob Phillips when we return with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school, and I didn't do it. Ten years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. When we get old, will you take care of me if I can't get around anymore? Of course. We'll find a way. Are you going to take care of me if I can't see anymore? I'll read to you every day. And if one of us gets Alzheimer's disease, what then? Call 1-800-437-2423 for a free booklet on caring for your loved ones from Alzheimer's Disease Research. 1-800-437-2423. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Back with Bob Phillips, uh, the Executive Director of Common Calls here on Carolina Newsmakers. Delighted again to have Bob with us. He's been a frequent guest on this program, and uh, we value his opinions and thoughts. And uh, as we've said in his introduction, he's a former journalist. At one time, uh, 20-some-odd years ago, Actually, a little bit longer than that, he was a, a television news person with uh, WPTF-TV. And uh, then he had the good sense to get out of uh, broadcasting and get an honest job where he was uh, probably better paid and uh, better served, for that matter. Uh, Bob, uh, Common Calls, of course, is always looking at all sorts of legislation. Let's talk about what legislation is uh, uh, currently on the agendas of the North Carolina House and Senate that you're concerned with and what uh, are you advocating for at this point in time? Well, any, uh, any laws or proposals that are going to uh, make voting, what we would say voting uh, more difficult uh, has our attention. And there, ha there have been some uh, that have been proposed, uh, things that might restrict the powers of the State Board of Elections Director, cutting completely uh, the allowance of uh, 
a properly postmarked absentee ballot uh, from being counted if it arrives within the three days after the election. We've had that law done for more than 10 years. And that is, again, if someone properly does uh, fills out their absentee ballot and uh, the mail service delivers it late, but within three days of the election, uh, traditionally that ballot has counted. And we see no reason for that not to still um, be the case, but yet there is a proposal that would uh, cut that out. So we're, we're playing a little bit of defense in that sense. And that is, again, opposing any kind of uh, proposal that makes voting in our minds uh, harder, but also uh, advocating for laws that would maybe, again, help open up and make it easier. Things we've talked about with regards to registering to vote, keeping uh, voting by mail uh, uh, easy and accessible, um, giving counties more flexibility with regards to early voting doesn't mean that we have to lengthen that 17-day early voting period that we have, but at the same time, giving counties a little bit more flexibility of when they have their early voting um, hours as opposed to a one-size-fits-all, which is kind of what we have. Um, so that's it in the voting realm. Um, with regards to redistricting, again, there have been bills that have been proposed that would provide what we think is a much better way to uh, draw the lines, and that is having a citizens commission do that uh, deed and not the lawmakers uh, with much more public input and much more transparency. Uh, candidly, those bills, will, they're parked in uh, rules and meaning they will not go anywhere. But what we are trying to do and what we might be able to influence is what we call the criteria. And that is sort of how, when that process does happen in October, uh, what that looks like. And again, we're pushing for any law, any proposal that does have more openness, more transparency, and uh, more public input. One thing I didn't mention, though, Don, and this is something we are also taking a strong stand on, we think because the census numbers are so delayed, we get them in late September, and the lawmakers cannot actually produce maps until October. Uh, and then you know that there is what we call the candidate filing period. That starts December 8th. So somehow, if uh, candidate Don Curtis is considering running for Congress, but you will not know. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Well, there's there's never say never, Don. There's always, uh, you know, time to, uh, to have that career change. But um, <laughs> if any candidate, maybe candidate Jason Kong will say then is running for Congress. You want to have the ability to kind of look and see what that congressional district is going to look like before you decide to have the time to talk to donors, to really get your uh, your act together. But we're not going to know that. The candidate's not going to know that until five weeks before they have to file. And that's just a short, compressed time. We have actually taken a position and encouraged and urged lawmakers to push the candidate filing period back to February, as it used to be, and push the actual primary election to early May, like it used to be, for this upcoming 2022 election year just to give legislators more time to draw the maps and not be under the pressure of uh, having to produce the maps very quickly for that to, to meet that candidate filing uh, time, which begins in December. So that's another piece that we are um, pushing. Um, those done are mainly, again, and they kind of center on the areas we talked about, voting rights and fair maps. 
we, we talked about this earlier on in the program, but I want to go back to it one more time because I think it's so important. As the population changes in North Carolina, the metropolitan areas get bigger, uh, the rural areas are getting less. What kind of problems do you see down the road as, as the rural areas actually lose more and more influence because uh, the uh, urban areas, especially those around Wake County and uh, Mecklenburg County and the Greensboro area, continue to have more and more representation in the General Assembly. Well, you don't want to have, I guess, to say, you know, where one area or the urban areas get all the toys. And obviously, an accurate census helps uh, as one way that the millions and millions of federal dollars are distributed based on an accurate count. And it is certainly in the COVID year we were in, uh, the, the, the former president and his administration didn't seem to also push robust participation like we had normally seen. And I do believe, I guess we'll know in September, that maybe even though we are getting that extra congressional seat, we just don't feel like, was there an undercount? I, I worry about that, and particularly in the rural areas. Uh, but that's what you worry about. We are a diverse state. Uh, we are not an agrar- agrarian state anymore, but there's still a significant numbers of folks who live in the rural parts. And you want to have and see that they are well represented and that they are also getting uh, a proper distribution of the services and resources that the state can offer. And uh, it's a concern, you know, are they going to be left out? Uh, last year this time, actually probably last year this time, maybe in April and May, we had a lot of uncertainty about where we were going. And, and quite frankly, I think almost all of us are rather amazed that the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, which was very, uh, which had a lot of adverse effect on a lot of people, but overall, state of North Carolina has come out pretty well. The state budget is, uh, uh, I mean, the, the funding in the General Assembly is there. Uh, I think last year this time, we were all worried about that. Uh, they've got plenty of money. As a matter of fact, one of the problems is going to be what to do with the, the extra money. Um, uh, were you surprised uh, to find ourselves in this position a year later? I was, you know, I mean, again, so many things shut down and in the service and retail industry, I know there was a lot of job loss and many of the small businesses, restaurants, stores, what have you, many of those unfortunately are closed and they're not going to come back. And you certainly hate to see that, but perhaps speaking to the diverse and professional and in the areas where we live in the triangle, and it's the same in Charlotte and probably in the triad, Uh, The workforce was not harmed and many people were able to, you know, work from home and continue uh, earning the money and spending the money and paying the property taxes. And of course, what also surprises me, Don, is just now, uh, you know, everybody talks about the pent up demand, but uh, the things that people are spending their money on and you can see it in the construction and in the home buying and all that is just phenomenal. And I know we're not alone in that, but um, A year ago, Don, like you said, I think everybody was very, very concerned about so many things, our health, but also our health of our economy. And indeed, North Carolina has fared much better than I would have thought. And of course, we were last year this time, we were looking at an election year and it was a very contentious election uh, in many respects. A lot of strong feelings and a lot of partisan. Do you think there's less partisanship today than maybe there was um, say a year ago, 
are we getting any better cooperation across party lines and is that improving at all? Well, you know, I hear in uh, sometimes anecdotes uh, in, the, in the legislature that uh, there have been some conversations and there, there have been a little bit of uh, uh, glimmers of hope that maybe we, uh, you know, have been seeing some uh, more bipartisanship or working across the aisle. I do think that a year ago, you know, the old phrase of we're all in it together, I think we felt that. And that did cross party lines. I mean, I know some people had different views of wearing masks and social distancing, but I think by and large, most people did feel that we're all in it together. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are stark differences uh, between both political parties, and that has not softened. Um, there might be, again, uh, more conversations that are happening, and that's a good thing. And while it doesn't mean that one side completely uh, uh, comes to the other side where you can have conversations, that's where maybe sometimes uh, that word compromise, which uh, I don't think is a bad word, you know, can come into play. Um, so it's a little bit of a mixed answer, Don. I do think those polarizing trends that we've seen, we are as polarized as ever. Uh, but, you know, over there on Jones Street, uh, you do have some relationships, some conversations that uh, I think uh, are emerging or are happening, rather, uh, in large part, based on that, you know, we were all facing severe challenges last year and we all felt like we were in the same boat. So, Bob, we've got about a minute and a half here for you to tell me what what are your biggest concerns right now as you look ahead uh, to the remainder of this year and the year ahead? What, what worries you the most about where we're going and where we are? Well, it's, for, it's sort of like who we are as a state and, and what kind of a state we want to project. And I think this is happening in other states around the country. But are we going to be a state that makes voting harder uh, for people and for certain constituencies or demographics of our state? I don't think that's what we want to do and where we want to go. And again, Don, as I mentioned, uh, the business community that is really responsible for uh, the great growth of our state. They come to North Carolina, new people come here to work in these jobs and these businesses. Apple's announcement has a lot of, you know, exciting things, but the brand of North Carolina matters and voting, strong voting laws are a key part of that. So it worries me. I don't want to see a, a rollback of that. And then obviously our, our goal of fair maps, our goal of where uh, districts, congressional and legislative districts are not gerrymandered where everybody feels like they have a voice, that their vote is not being diluted. Uh, where we land and what happens with that is also a great concern. But we got a lot of great things about North Carolina too. I don't ever try to take that for granted, uh, but we're gonna continue to work for what we think are the things that are needed to improve democracy. Bob, thank you so much for being with us. Bob Phillips, Executive Director of Common Calls North Carolina. This program comes in two, uh, two forms. A number of you are watching a 30 minute version if you'd like to hear the segments that you missed, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear those segments. Or if you'd like to share the entire broadcast with a friend, you can do that as well, carolinanewsmakers.com. Jason Conn will have another guest for us next week on the same group of stations across the state. Until next week, have a good week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong 
Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.